it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Today is Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Delighted to have you all here as I am in New York City. Hosting the show for the next couple of days, all the way through the end of the week, from Fox News World Headquarters in the Big Apple. Thank you for tuning in between 3 and 6 p.m. every single weekday. Those three hours each and every day. And if you miss any of it, we have a podcast that is free on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you could need about this program is right there. But we do recommend listening live if you have that opportunity between 3 and 6. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram if you want to give us a follow. We appreciate it. We've got our first guest coming up here in a moment. Later on, Jason Chaffetz, the former congressman, a Fox News contributor. He will be here in our middle hour. I will also have a conversation with Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. He was one of a number of members of Congress to reach out to me over the last four or five days over the gay marriage vote on Capitol Hill. He wanted to have a private word about it. He wanted to bounce some things off of me. And then after we had the conversation, he said, you know what, it might be good for us to have this discussion publicly. I said, great, why don't you come on the show? He agreed, and we will have that conversation coming up in our final hour. So that is all ahead. Well, we told you yesterday at the top of the show that this is going to be a big week on economic indicators. There were some big reports that we've been waiting on, the big one probably being Thursday, the biggest, which is GDP, the economic growth or lack thereof indicator. That's going to be July 28th, and there's this big conversation right now about whether or not we're going to get a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, contraction, which would be, based on the rule of thumb definition used forever, a recession. And on the show yesterday, we played a bunch of sound bites of the Biden team already preemptively trying to sort of change the landscape and change the definition of a recession, saying, oh, even if it comes in bad, it wouldn't technically be a recession. So there's a lot to unpack there, and there's new data out today. Let's get into it. Let's dig into it with Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts, every weekday from 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel. She spent a lot of time in her career at the Business Network. She understands the economy. She's covered it for many years. And Sandra, as always, it's great to have you. Great to, ha- great to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the new news out today on consumer confidence. That metric was expected to be soft. And it turned out to be even softer than the expectations. Tell us about that number and what it means. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just a change in the way the consumer is feeling in this country right now. And um, we're definitely seeing a 
a change in the way the consumer is behaving. I think you probably saw the latest with Walmart. Uh, they're putting out warnings about the way people are shopping now. Uh, they're not just strolling the aisles and throwing things in the cart that they don't necessarily need, just items they want. They're cutting back, changing their behaviors, and they're uh, starting to only buy what they need. And that is an indication to economists that there is a change in sentiment. And then when you get a consumer confidence number like this nearing a one and a half year low, um, while at the same time, you've still got housing prices elevated, you're entering sort of what one economist I read this morning described as this perfect storm for a downturn in the U.S. economy. And we always, Guy, look to those GDP numbers, okay? It's a, it, It's the it's the broad metric of growth that we, we look at for the American economy. And traditionally, two straight quarters of economic declines or, you know, contractions in the economy, that is the tradition of a recession. Most economists do go by that. This White House is now saying, well, you know, there's some areas of the economy like un- unemployment that is still low. So we don't really think that this time around, even if GDP is negative for a second quarter, we don't think this is actually a recession. And you have to ask yourself that question. You you look at the timing um, that we're approaching the midterm elections. You, you, the administration isn't going to want to say uh, that this president's policies have led us into a recession just months before uh, voters head to the polls. Right. Um, that's just not going to work. So it seems to me they're just trying to avoid the use of that word because of the negative implications of it. Oh, I think that's obvious. I, I think it's hard to argue otherwise. So you've got the consumer confidence number falling. We knew it would probably come down. It came down more than expected. There was also this U.S. home price growth cooled for a second straight month in May. We just got that number in. So maybe that bubble is deflating a little bit as well. There's been some of the some of the indicators of a roaring economy or you know a hot economy are starting to cool off, Sandra. And you layer on top of that this meeting that everyone's looking to with the Fed about interest rates and discussions about whether they might need to do a really big one, another really painful one in a series of actions that would hurt the economy overall. I mean, that's like next up on the chopping block here. We've got consumer confidence today. We've got GDP Thursday. We've got the Fed meeting. It's just kind of this potentially murderer's row of a week with Big, big decisions and numbers coming out that could very much chart the trajectory moving forward here for the months to come. Let me just share this this with you, because I put in a request to our brain room folks at Fox. They're awesome. and They dig up all kinds of, you know, brand new information for us or information that existed. But we dig it up because it's there and it doesn't always get um, the light of day. I asked our brain room to take a look at who is hurt the most by this inflationary crisis. And, Guy, I know you know the answer to that, but we don't always talk about the actual data behind it. I mean, this inflationary problem, which Janet Yellen admittedly got wrong, um, and so many other administration officials got wrong, it's going to be transitory, this isn't going to last very long, and here we are. If they had gotten it right, we could have avoided, you know, the 9% inflation that we're all suffering through today. And we wouldn't have to have the Federal Reserve potentially raise interest rates a full percentage point uh, at the conclusion of tomorrow's meeting, which will be um, – that will be a huge moment for credit card borrowers. It'll be a huge moment for home buyers. It's going to change a lot of things about this economy at a time. 
time where uh, 60% of the population is living paycheck to paycheck. I asked the brain room, I said, can you tell me for lower income households, when you take their average income, the average income of the lower income households in America, tell me what percentage of their income they're spending on inflation. It is astounding, Guy. The lower income households, the brain room says, that make $26,400 a year on average are on track this year to spend 26 percent of their income on gas and home energy bills. Wow. That's up from 20 percent um, that they they were spending in 2020. Middle income, they're on track to spend 12 uh, percent of their average $65,000 income on inflation. You go to the highest a lot. income group, this is not hurting the higher income group. So my point is the highest income group, this is, is inflation accounts for 5% of their overall income. So the very people that this administration says that they are out to help the most are the ones paying for their policy mistakes. Yep. And that needs to be highlighted. Well, and we've heard from the White House. We played a clip yesterday. They're going back to this talking point. We need the economy to grow from the middle out and the bottom up. I think that's a very silly talking point. But if you take it seriously – it is not working at all. It, just the opposite is happening under Joe Biden's economy with inflation taking an extra painful bite out of people the lower they get down the income scale, lower income, middle income. I mean, double digits they're spending. They're dedicating double digits out of necessity, devoting double digit percentage of their income to inflation related costs. I mean, that is just a staggering statistic, Sandra. I think it really illustrates the problem here. And why it is so acute for so many people. And let's talk then about the issue of a recession and the possibility of a recession. I know, as you pointed out, the White House doesn't really want to touch that word for political reasons. And there's a bunch of people digging up clips of them and reporters and administration officials using that shorthand to consecutive quarters of uh, economic contraction is a recession. They've used it many times because it is broadly used. It is commonplace. It's not like this was invented to hurt Joe Biden. This is the standard and they don't want it to hurt Joe Biden. So they're going to try to change the standard, change the definition. So Karine Jean-Pierre, who speaks on behalf of the president, the White House press secretary, she said that economic indicators right now, quote, do not show that we are in a recession or even a pre-recession. That's the quote. She said, we're not in a recession or a pre-recession. I would love to know how she defines pre-recession, but she wouldn't even define recession. In Cut 14, listen to this. What is exactly the White House's definition of a recession? Again, we don't, we don't, I'm not going to define it from here. I'm just going to leave it to the NBER as as Okay, so she she punts. Oh, we're we're not going to define the word recession, but we're not in one and we're not even in a pre-recession. And I think if she were pressured to answer what is a pre-recession, what the hell are you talking about? I don't think she would have a great answer there. Sandra, it just kind of sounds like gobbledygook where they want to sort of assure people that we're not in a recession and Biden himself said we're not going to be in one. That's what he said yesterday. And then also when pushed on what their terms actually mean, uh, they don't want to go there either cuz maybe they don't want to provide sound bites. That would hurt them politically. I just don't know how they feel that this approach is doing anything for anyone that's going to benefit them politically because it's so obviously sort of tap dancing political spin, at least to me. 
tap dancing and out of touch add to uh, the economic data that is readily available to this White House, and you can make the case that they're just ignoring it. Um, as we reported on our show earlier, um, you've now got more Americans today than ever before having to work two full-time jobs just to pay for the high cost of inflation. Um, that is something that people feel. That is something that hurts people um, every day and takes away from them spending time with their family. As I mentioned early, six, earlier, 60% of the American population says that they are now living paycheck to paycheck, uh, trying to cover these, the cost of these bills. And as I had one viewer email me during the show today saying, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge how hard it is for the working folks out there. It's another thing to also think about those who are trying to meet these inflation demands on a fixed income. You know, it's it, it, it's tight everywhere. So what I will say to you, um, Guy, when you hear the White House trying to tap dance around this, uh, defining this as a recession, it doesn't take away from the facts of the matter. Right, the reality on the ground, and you're looking at consumer confidence, housing prices, maybe another big height rake from the Fed, and then this question about recession and the GDP number on Thursday, it's all coming to a head this week. We've got you covered on The Guy Benson Show. Sandra Smith, thank you. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So the president of the United States tweeted yesterday, although it was not him, it was his team, but it went out under his name, under at POTUS, President Biden. He said, for American families looking for a little more breathing room, these savings matter. Then they had an infographic that apparently was constructed and put together by an intern with a glaring typo. But the graphic says, at current prices, the average driver will spend $35 less per month for one piece they meant person, than they would if gas prices stayed at their peak. So at the current prices, the average driver spending 35 bucks less a month per piece 
than if gas had remained at over $5 a gallon on average. Now, there are plenty of places in the country where gas is still over $5 a gallon. The national average remains well over $4 a gallon. When this president took office, gas was a little bit over $2 a gallon. And the Republican Party responding to this tweet, just reminding people of the stats, the nationwide average for gas is more than 430 a gallon. It was 239 per gallon when Biden took office. In fact, American families have already lost $1,500 due to increased energy costs since Biden took office. And it's just sort of like, I think, such a self-own by this president and this administration to be spiking the football on gas prices. I can understand that they're encouraged that prices are coming down a little bit compared to the brutal numbers that we were seeing just a few weeks ago. But the current less brutal numbers are nevertheless still brutal. Americans were accustomed to paying $2 and change per gallon. So to be north of 4 bucks per gallon on average is not something to celebrate. And we told you about a Washington Post analysis talking to experts who were worried that toward the end of the summer and coming into the fall, we might see another surge in gas prices. There was someone comparing it on social media to a car lot at a car dealership, raising the cost of their cars by 10 grand, then offering people like a $1,500 discount off of the new higher price and demanding gratitude. Like, hey, look at what we've done for you. And I think that's sort of a funny analogy. It doesn't quite work here, though, unless the car dealership had been saying over and over again to anyone who would listen for months on end, that they had no control over the price of their cars. Because that's what Biden did on gas. Team Biden was saying, oh, he doesn't have any control over this. Just totally sweeping aside all of the hostility to American energy production here at home that they fought and battled with and shut down to the best of their ability starting on day one of this presidency. And they continue, they maintain their opposition to fossil fuels. And they're pledged to put that industry out of business as soon as they possibly can. But for now, they need them to produce. They need them to lower costs. So they're just pretending like big, greedy businesses. And the oil industry can just do it. It's a fiction. Of course, you had corporate greed. You had Putin. All the excuses. Now the number's down a little bit. And they're like, look at what we have done for you. You're welcome, America. And the idea that they're going to get a bunch of groveling thanks as the price of everything is up and continuing to go up in many cases with the threat of recession looming over everything. You know, I just don't feel like the public generally is in a super thankful mood right now to the president or to the government, which might be why, oh, about 70 percent of the country thinks we're on the wrong track. And the right track number is bouncing in the teens and lower 20s. It's sort of like, I know it's a cliche, but read the room. A tweet like this, even with the misspelling, is not reading the room here in the country very well at all.
but that has been a hallmark of this administration. They have both a messaging problem and a reality problem, and that is a recipe for disaster. And it does feel pretty disastrous right now, does it not? On that front, there was a Washington Post op-ed this week begging Biden to do something specific. It's a bit controversial. I don't think it's realistic, but we will entertain it as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is free every day. So I teased this before the break. Washington Post op-ed this week. Headline. Quit, Joe, quit. Biden could save the midterms with a one-term pledge. It's written by a guy named Stephen Eisenberg who was the publisher of New York Newsday, a newspaper in this area. He's also chief of staff to New York City Mayor John Lindsay back in the day. And his case that he lays out is that Joe Biden, before the midterms, as soon as possible, should announce that he will be a one-term president and he will not seek re-election in 2024. And in this author's thinking, based on his argument, this would allow the Democrats more flexibility to decouple from Biden's unpopularity would allow Biden to pivot in the second half of his term to approach the presidency differently, which, by the way, he would have to do if the Republicans win the midterm elections anyway. That would be my preferred way of getting to that outcome. That would be the method, the precipitating event that I would like to see. But I guess the argument here is the Democrats can sort of shed the Biden brand, they can start looking to the future. Biden can be a different sort of president for the next two years. And this might help the Democrats mitigate some of their losses in November. Or maybe even, based on the headlines, save the midterm elections for Democrats. Now, I dispute this premise on a few different fronts. Number one, let's just say... Biden read this article and decided, you know what? He's right. I'm not going to run again. Let me announce it now. Let's just say for the sake of argument for a second that Biden would actually do this. I don't think it would help the Democrats in the midterms. It would be yet another piece of information, yet another data point of the Democrats being in disarray. Right? If the party leader effectively makes himself a lame duck before a midterm election because of his own unpopularity, and by the way, the deep unpopularity of his vice president as well, who is waiting in the wings as a potential heir apparent. I know there's some buzz today about 
one poll out of New Hampshire that has Pete Buttigieg ahead by like a point or something over Biden in a Democratic primary in 2024. I think Pete Buttigieg would do pretty well with a certain element of the Democratic base, a lily white element of the Democratic base. He has almost no appeal among any people of color. That's been his problem. It was his problem last time he tried to run. I think Buttigieg may seek the presidency. He might go for it in 24. I think there's a reason why he changed his residency from Indiana, where he has virtually no chance to win statewide. He tried once, got crushed. He ran for statewide office in Indiana and got absolutely blown out. And he said, you know what I need to do? I need to be president. That also didn't work out for him. Now he's a cabinet secretary, Pete Transportation secretary. Flights have been great this summer, haven't they? Trains delayed all over the place. Gas prices. Still a bunch of delays in supply chains. Baby formula issues. I mean, it's just been a whole comedy of errors on the transportation front that have had real implications for a lot of people. And you don't really hear a lot from Secretary Pete about any of that. When he goes on TV, he's slick. He's smooth. He speaks in perfectly formed paragraphs, which is much more than can be said about Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or the press secretary at the White House. So, you know, kudos to him on that. It's a leg up. But the actual outcomes, the policy results within his portfolio have been a disaster. In any case, I think he might want to parlay his presidential cabinet position into perhaps a Senate race because he's moved to Michigan. Indiana's too red, too conservative. He's moved to Michigan now. That's his quote-unquote home state, even though he is from Indiana and works and lives in D.C. I think that just might be an indication of where he wants to go in the future because Buttigieg strikes me as the guy who has been plotting his course to the White House and the presidency from inside the womb. Like as a fetus, Pete Buttigieg was trying to figure out When I arrive on the scene in a few months here, what's the first thing I should do to get on the path to power? That's just how he reads as a person. It's how he's developed his entire resume. But I guess he's leading Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the rest of the field by a point in a New Hampshire poll. And that comes on the heels of the New York Times poll discussed many times over what, two or three weeks ago now, showing that almost two out of three Democrats want Biden to step aside and not go for another four years. So the discussions then start happening. Who would it be? Is Biden going to go along with this? Biden and his team keep saying, no, he's running for reelection. He's raising money. They have to say that. I've said for a while, my guess is he will not run. But if Biden were to announce that, in the next couple weeks or in the fall heading into November. How would that help the Democrats? You would still have the prospect of a unified Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, Joe Biden, for the next two years. The American people are looking around, seeing what's happening in the country, not just on inflation, not just on gas prices, which the Biden people ludicrously are trying to brag about right now, not just on foreign policy. We're going to have the Afghanistan debacle anniversary coming up in a few weeks here. The border, various shortages, it just goes on and on. Crime. 2025 is a long way off. 
And the problem, yes, in part, is Joe Biden and his figurehead bad leadership, where he ran as a moderate and a healer, but has governed like he's trying to be the best friend of sort of the squad and their allies and pleasing basically nobody with that approach as his ratings plummet. But the problem goes well beyond Joe Biden, the man, Joe Biden, the person, or Kamala Harris, or any individual inside the White House. It is the agenda. It is the progressive left agenda that Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration have been forcing down our throats. The American people are deeply unimpressed. And if Democrats win the midterm elections, it will be more of the same for the next two years. And based on the right track, wrong track numbers that we referenced earlier, the overwhelming majority of this country, of voters in America, do not want more of the same. They want to run screaming away from more of the same. So Joe Biden would not magically become unpresident if he announced that he wouldn't run for re-election. He'd still be around. This whole cast of characters, this clown show, this freight train going off the cliff would keep chugging with him at the helm. For two long years, he is a part of the problem. He represents a lot of the problem, but there are deeper underlying issues here that can be laid at the feet of his entire coalition and his party. That is what needs to drive the midterms. It's not like Biden or the Democrats. It's Biden and the Democrats. They're all in this. They're all complicit in this. So I think the chaos within the party, the endless distracting discussions about, oh, it's not going to be Biden. He's out now. Who will it be? Those would start early. You'd have the factions beginning. You'd have the disarray narrative very much intact, probably on steroids now. And it still wouldn't fix the problem, which is the Democrats controlling everything and having bad policies with very few checks on that power. That's what the American people want to put a stop to, what they want to tap the brakes on or slam the brakes on. That's the opportunity in November. And Joe Biden making some announcement about years into the future would not change that overall trajectory or those realities, in my opinion. And then beyond that, my second big issue with this op-ed piece in the Washington Post saying that Biden should announce he's a one-termer and save, quote-unquote, save the midterms? I just don't think it's realistic. Does Joe Biden or any president want to make themselves deliberately, intentionally, declare themselves a lame duck less than halfway through a term? Now, he would arguably be a lame duck president as soon as the Republicans win back the House, because he would be able to accomplish even less than he has. And thank goodness he hasn't done more. This has been more than enough. Thank you very much. They've been a few votes away from doing a lot more damage. If Republicans win one or both chambers, that agenda comes to a screeching halt. And incidentally, if Republicans win the Senate, then his appointments won't come to a screeching halt, but they're going to have to change dramatically to reflect that new Status quo. So he would be something of a lame duck if Republicans win the midterms. But I'm not sure he wants to be the guy to raise his hand and say, attention, America. Yes, I am a lame duck. I didn't even make it two years. 
Didn't even make it to halftime. I'm out of here. You don't want me. I just don't think he has that in him. I don't think that is a realistic thing. I don't think any president would want to put him or herself into that corner, into that box so soon. He wants to keep his options open. I think he would like to run for re-election. And in the event that ultimately he faces reality and decides that he can't, which if I had to bet, again, I think probably that ends up being the case, the team will wait until the last possible minute to reveal that, to still allow the rest of the party to go out and have a robust primary and people to ramp up their campaigns or whatever. But summer or fall of 2022 is hugely premature. So that's my analysis. I think this is wrong on both major counts. It's not realistic. He's not going to do it. And even if he did do it, the rationale behind it, this would somehow save the bacon of the Democrats in November, I think is also incorrect. Now, the Democrats are not the only party looking ahead, looking beyond 2022. I personally believe that Republicans need to be looking forward at November. There will be lots of time to argue about 2024. I actually don't really look forward to that. I am not relishing the thought, especially if Trump gets in, as he indicates he will. I'm not relishing the thought of a big brawl over Trump and a Republican primary ahead of 2024. I'm not excited about that, if you can't tell. But for now, first things first, win the midterms. It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen automatically. It might feel that way because of how awful things are and how badly the Democrats are screwing up. But if Republicans aren't really looking at the current prize the task at hand, and they're already gearing up for the next thing, that is how you have an underwhelming night in November, which would have implications immediately, but also in the longer term, because you want to build the biggest majorities, be in the best possible position as soon as possible, then try to build on that. And if at some point you lose, you want to have enough seats where you can, you know, play some effective defense. This is a great golden, historic opportunity for Republicans to win big, and that needs to be the focus right now. I think that is a crucial point to make. And yet, you've got Trump whispering to reporters, giving interviews that he's already made up his mind. We talked about this. Sounds like he's going to run. He's only deciding should he announce before the midterms. I wish he wouldn't run, but if he does, he absolutely should not stomp into the midterm cycle with that. Just stay out of it, see what happens in November, and then we can turn the page. I made that very clear when we had that big discussion here on the show a couple weeks back. But as other people are starting to think about the prospect of Trump running again, you're starting to hear some early attack lines and quasi-veiled criticisms, including this from former Vice President Pence speaking at a YAF conference today in Cut 28. Not very subtle. I truly do believe that elections are about the future and that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. But I think the time has come for us to offer a bold, positive agenda to bring America back. And I'll continue to carry that message all across this nation. Aha. Well, I have some thoughts on that. I will share them with you right after this quick break on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
I truly do believe that elections are about the future, and that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. That was former Vice President Mike Pence earlier today, and the context is pretty clear there, a reference to former President Trump. And obviously, reading between the lines, it's not hard. He's talking about Trump and his never-ending obsession with 2020 and the election and all the conspiracy theories that it was stolen and everything. There was a report, I believe it was last week, that he's still pressuring officials in Wisconsin about it. So the media loves looking back. The Democrats love looking back. Trump loves looking back. And that is not what the country needs. And that's the point that Pence is making. And by the way, it's a pretty smart and effective point. Echelon Insights, a Republican pollster, did an entire survey of Republican voters about good reasons versus bad reasons, persuasive versus not persuasive, if you're arguing against Trump running again. And the most persuasive argument, a good reason to oppose Donald Trump, a majority of Republican voters say Trump is too focused on what happened in 2020. That is the number one most potent argument against him. By almost 20 points, That is an effective argument with Republican voters. Another very effective one. It's time for younger leaders to carry forward the MAGA movement. Almost every other argument against Trump that they polled is underwater. So Pence seems to be zeroing in on the most effective line of argument. There'll be others as well. I'm not sure Pence is the best guy to prosecute that case. But that's just a little taste and inkling of what's to come on the Republican side. Since I told you about this Washington Post column already getting ahead of 2024, it's very much underway on the GOP side of things as well. That's just a reality. I can stave it off and stiff arm it as much as I can and try to push it into the future. But to some extent, you just have to face facts. It's here. It has arrived. Maybe not fully in earnest, but it is not far off in the distance. So occasionally we are going to talk about it. I will leave you with this, bouncing back to the Democratic side of the aisle. Cori Bush, Democrat of Missouri, member of the squad, was asked about Biden running again. And I think she was channeling the feelings of an awful lot of Democrats who kind of are hedging on Biden because they're not sure how it's going to go. But the silence, the refusal to answer also kind of speaks volumes in Cut 21. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? Yeah, I, you know... Uh, that's an easy question. It's not going to take long. Do you want to see Joe I, Biden I don't run? want to answer that question because we have not... That's not... Yeah, I don't want to answer that question. Okay. Um, I mean, he's the president and he has the right to to run for a second term. Absolutely. That's, but right but I don't want to... I don't, I don't want... I'd rather you not do that answer. Uh, so you like- <laughs> and you can hear the staff in the background. Uh, she's got to go. She's got to go. And she actually just says straight up, I don't want to answer that question because it's a little bit loaded. It's fraught with potential drama And here's the thing, Congresswoman, as I just said, the drama is here already, like it or not, on both sides of the aisle. We got to run. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Oh, look, it's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome. I'm Guy Benson in New York City for the rest of the week. 
conducting my hosting duties from here. Thank you for listening between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. Everything there at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow down today, 228 points at the close, ending at 31,761 after reports of a lower consumer confidence number emerged. And in fact, it's the third straight month with that indicator falling. People are jittery about the Fed interest rates going up again this week. There's a meeting upcoming. Then, of course, the GDP number on Thursday, which the White House is preemptively spinning as not a recession, even if it would enter into the definition of a recession that we all have been using for decades. So that gives you a sense of their level of confidence about the way that is moving. With us now to discuss that and more, Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee and author of They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste. You can check out his podcast, Jason in the House, foxnewsradio.com. And Jason, it's good to have you back here. Hey, thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. All right. So you're seeing all this spin work out there. We talked about it yesterday. We chatted with Sandra Smith about it at the top of the show already. I mean... My point that I made on special report last night is they can use whatever words they want to try to use. They can frantically attempt to redefine terms if their language and their spin does not connect with what people are actually experiencing. It won't really make any difference. I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, shameless of them to do it, but I don't think it's helpful. In some ways, I almost wonder does it hurt them even more to the point that they piss people off by insulting their intelligence? I think there might be something to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp of the latter. I, I think they can put all the spin out they want on it, but everybody understands and knows their own circumstances. And, you know, I went to, I have, I happened to drive an F-150, a Ford F-150, a pickup truck, and it was $101. And it wasn't even quite to empty uh, when I filled it up. Everybody understands that. They get that. Um, and so I think it's insulting. I think not only do they just dismiss that as political spin, but I think what they're doing is using the little oxygen that they have and that they aren't showing the compassion. They aren't showing, uh, that they sympathize the empathy that is needed. Or just like grounded in reality. Yeah. And, and then they don't offer a solution on how to solve it. You know, Americans are so forgiving, but you you got to show your 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 warm concerned heart but then hey folks here's what we're going to do to solve the problem and releasing more of the strategic petroleum reserve hurts us in the long term it doesn't help us and and i don't i think people are recognizing that biden and, and harris above and beyond that this administration commerce secretary energy secretary you go right on down the list. They don't have a game plan to solve this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem that Democrats also have more broadly beyond just the administration. So there's a big Senate race in Pennsylvania, and the Democrats have nominated this guy, John Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor. He's a big leftist, Bernie Sanders-type guy, bringing Elizabeth Warren into campaign with him. And he posted – he's sort of like uh, one of these you know, populist-type guys, and he's got the goatee and his right. tattoos and everything. And he posted on social media his dollar amount 
after he filled up his truck and it was over a hundred dollars and he was mad about it. So he was sort of like, you know, I feel your pain. Literally, look, I'm I'm outraged by this. Okay. Interesting as far as that goes. But then he tried to turn that into an attack on Dr. Oz, who's the Republican in the race who is not in politics. He is not elected yet. He wants to be U.S. Senator. Democrats control the White House and the House and the Senate. They've been extremely hostile to U.S. energy production since day one of the Biden administration. Fetterman himself is on the record as opposing fracking and other things that would be a boon to the U.S. being a net exporter of energy. He's against that sort of thing because, you know, he's got his green constituents to be worried about and that element of the party. I just feel like saying, oh, look, it was expensive for me, too, and I'm mad about it gets you to a certain point, but then it becomes incoherent when a guy like Fetterman, a Democrat, tries to pin the blame on Dr. Oz, who's not going to stand up to corporations or something. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And he hasn't been in office. He's not a career politician. Look, we have a supply problem. So what are you going to do to increase the supply? Uh, The demand is there. It'd probably be even higher if the economy was doing better. Um, but we have a supply problem and they have the Democrats across the board have no plans to increase the supply of our petroleum. And in this, these 20 million barrels, I guy, it just bothers me to no end. We set up the strategic petroleum reserve in case of an emergency, a natural disaster, a war, heaven forbid. And we're depleting that like we've never depleted it before. And it puts our country in further danger and jeopardy. It's just, it, it's a bandaid. It's not a long-term solution. Jason Chaffetz, on another subject, I want to play you a few sound bites. And my colleagues at townhall.com were very clever to juxtapose these back-to-back. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who says he's going to be stepping down from his current position sometime during the Biden administration, he's doing interviews still. He gave one uh, on a YouTube show called Rising the other day and is actually a fairly critical or challenging interview, which he doesn't encounter a lot. When journalists interview him, it's just sort of like, you know, one puff question after another. But the hosts pressed him on a number of things. And he said at one point that, you know, one of his biggest regrets of the pandemic was that they didn't know more sooner to then have even more stringent, you know, lockdown and restrictions in the early days. He was dodging and deflecting and dissembling on schools and sort of trying to hedge and pretend he wasn't part of the problem on school closures even though to some extent he almost certainly was. And then on that point, he made an assertion, if you listen in cut 18, to something he says he never did, and then we'll see if that's true. Let's listen to what he said this week first. I wonder if you would recommend locking down schools if you had to do it all over again. First of all, I didn't recommend locking anything down. You're you're asking me questions. You're talking about the CDC is the public health agency that uses their epidemiologists and their science-based approach to make recommendations. I didn't recommend locking anything down, is what Fauci said. That was this week. How about October of 2020? Here's the same man in another interview. He's done many. Cut 19. It was a decision to make a recommendation to the president. It wasn't my decision that I could implement. And when it became clear that when we had um, community spread in the country with a few cases of community spread, this was way before 
there was a major explosion like we saw in the Northeastern corridor driven by New York City metropolitan area. I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. All right. I didn't recommend locking anything down. Then rewind the tape. I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. And I'm sure he could parse it and say, well, I said this thing and I didn't quite frame it that way and all of it. But, Jason, we all just lived through this. We know what side generally Dr. Fauci was on. And I don't understand really the point of him trying to pretend that he never recommended any lockdowns. Of course he did. Well, it's absurd to suggest he didn't. Uh, I mean, he was clearly out there um, showing everybody, lock it down, put on your mask, don't go to school, put restrictions on travel, uh, all of those things. He mentioned the mask, but remember, he had the noble lie first. Masks don't matter. Right, because right. they they had to noble nobly lie to us, and then they reversed on that. He's had a few of those noble lies. One was on, uh, I think, natural immunity or herd immunity. That was another noble lie that he told us. I'm not sure if this one would count as a noble lie. It's just uh, we we talked about it earlier this segment. Insulting people's intelligence. You can't if you're him. You can't go around saying, "Oh, I never recommended shutting anything down, locking anything down." He did it. He said it. He bragged about it. And in the same interview, he said he wishes they could have been more stringent on some stuff in community spread in the early going. It feels like there's kind of like a no regrets, double down attitude from this guy. And he represents an awful lot of people, including a lot of blue state leaders, teachers unions. The amount of harm that they inflicted was catastrophic. And I don't blame him for everything. And a lot of it was fog of war. And I've not been this big, hardcore Fauci hater forever. But it is disturbing to me if you look at what has happened in this country and you have two years of retrospect to look back and maybe revisit some of those decisions and your attitude is sort of pugnacious and denialist this way. I don't think that speaks very highly of the way that he's maybe engaging in self-reflection if he's doing any of that at all. Well, uh, well said. I, I agree with all of that. And it's always been a mystery to me, Guy. Why does the Biden-Harris administration keep him on? I mean, if they wanted a fresh start, if they wanted well, He's to... like a religious symbol, Jason, among the left. <laughs> That's why. That's it. Right? That's it. They have I mean, dolls it... of him. They have statues of him. They have tattoos of the man. Yeah, he's like the... I, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to get myself into trouble by doing a comparison. But they really should have gotten rid of him a long time ago and had a fresh new face who could who could bring up, bring forward a lot of, you know, engender confidence and, and a fresh approach to it. But no, I think he sort of personifies the Biden administration and they're going to try to revise the history. They don't have any fresh new thinking on this and they haven't followed the science. I mean, I, I listened to, you know, Nicole, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, Dr. McCarthy, so many of these doctors get on saying, well, no, that's not a, that's not true. That's not how this is working. And why didn't they do a mask? Why have they done a, a mask study? I mean, if we're going to so, be so reliant, that's going to be our first line of defense. How come the CDC still has not done a mask study? I don't yeah. understand that. And when they try to point to mask studies that they say justifies mask mandates, it's just like rife with errors and riddled with problems And a lot of the studies and actual data, the outcomes in the real world show that mask mandates just don't work in schools and writ large in society. That's the reality. Even David Leonhardt of The New York Times finally got around to admitting that is the actual science 
And you still have people talking about reimposing them. It's just, it's wild to me. Jason, last topic, very different. I saw Catherine Herridge at CBS News tweeting about this. The New York Post also writing about it. Chuck Grassley, senator from Iowa, put out a lengthy letter this week. He says he's got some whistleblowers. Here's how the Post describes it. The FBI and Justice Department have been accused by, quote, highly credible whistleblowers of burying, quote, verified and verifiable dirt on President Biden's troubled son, Hunter, by incorrectly dismissing the intelligence as, quote, disinformation, according to Senator Chuck Grassley. The ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee made the explosive claims Monday in an official Senate letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Merrick Garland. He insisted the allegations were so serious they would prove, if confirmed, that both offices were institutionally corrupted to their very core, talking about DOJ and FBI What's this about? I don't know if you've read the letter, Jason, but it seems like there are people inside that that institution or both of those institutions who say those institutions were used to engage in a partisan cover up by spreading disinformation about disinformation that, in fact, was real under their purview. At the very least, I think this deserves to be looked at. I feel like it might be at the top of the list for, let's say, a House Oversight Committee if Republicans uh, were to win in November. What are your general thoughts on this story as it emerges? Well, Senator Grassley is one of the most savvy and important people to do these types of investigation. When, when I was the chairman over in the House, we partnered with him continuously. He was he was wonderful. Uh, the allegation is a serious one. These are not uh, interns over there at the Department of Justice, very senior titled persons who were posting on social media, which is obviously easily verifiable, uh, but those posts have evidently been taken down, um, according to Grassley. But these people Im- almost immediately took the Hunter Biden case and spun it as as uh, uh, disinformation, uh, rather than pursuing it and taking an uh, an objective viewpoint to look at the information, which we know now the laptop is is real. I mean, even Hunter Biden is in that camp at this point. So. Um, that's the concern, and that's why the inspector general is is having to get involved here. Um, you have whistleblowers who are personally involved in this, saying these two people helped shut this thing down, didn't want to do the investigation, and had their own political spin, both publicly and within the department and the agency. And it doesn't get any more serious of an allegation than that from a, from an organization that's supposed to be law enforcement. They're supposed to objectively come in and find, uh, you know, call balls and strikes and figure out what's right and wrong. Jason Chaffetz, a Fox News contributor, former chairman, as he just mentioned, of the House Oversight Committee. His podcast here is called Jason in the House. That's also his Twitter handle, at Jason in the House, if you'd like to follow him. Jason, always good to talk to you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. And we will step aside, come right back. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We were just chatting with Jason Chaffetz in the last segment. I was talking about the Hunter Biden stuff and how there would probably be a number of different tentacles to that story that a House committee, an oversight committee in Republican hands could look into. I said it might be near the top of the list. I would say probably near the very top of the list, if not at the top, should be what we discussed with Dr. Marty McCary on the show. I believe it was last week. The whistleblowers in the public health establishment 
talking about this chilling effect on dissent when the CDC and FDA was just from on high making recommendations with scant or non-existent or deeply flawed data when it comes to COVID and treatments and vaccines for children and people not being allowed to really say what they think internally for fear of getting benched or sort of demoted or judged by their colleagues. Like, this is not what we're on the team here. We're going to follow the team, even if it's not what the data shows. I think that probably for me would be right up there. On the issue of COVID, speaking of chilling, did you hear this soundbite? This is the prime minister of New Zealand. They have been arguably the biggest lockdown country in the world. Tiny country, you know, of islands. So you could have maybe understand the mentality But she was warning against misinformation or disinformation, and she said the government is the sole source of truth. It is just Orwellian to its core. Listen to Cut 20. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide information frequently. We will share everything we can, uh, everything else you see, um, a grain of salt. Uh, And so I really ask people to focus. Remember that unless you hear it from us, um, it is not the truth. Unless you hear it from us, the government, it is not the truth. We will continue to be your single source of truth. I don't care how well-meaning someone might be, and I'm not sure she's all that well-meaning all the time on some of this stuff. She relishes the control, and she has wielded it ruthlessly. But when anyone in government tells you that they're the single source of truth, and if you don't hear from them, it's not true— run away that is a red flag flapping in the breeze down in a very beautiful country filled with lovely people but uh count me out for that prime minister arden we'll be right back on the guy benson show you're listening to a new generation of talk guy benson We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. A lot more to still get to here on the program, including a conversation in the next hour with Congressman Mike Gallagher that I'm looking forward to, a Republican from Wisconsin who voted in a way that I disagree with on a recent bill, and we will have a conversation about that, and that's upcoming. By the way, did you see on Capitol Hill, was it yesterday, some Democratic staffers went to protest for, like, climate change action or something in Chuck Schumer's office? And some of them, I think, got themselves arrested, which is the very chic hotness right now, right? AOC, I wonder if they pretended to be handcuffed, if they wanted to follow in the spirit and the footsteps of Ilhan Omar and AOC with their hands behind their back, only to occasionally lift the power fist, shattering the illusion, then back they went behind their back. Maybe you can get away with that if you're a member of Congress with a special pin on your lapel. If you're a staffer, imagine being a staffer and having the self-regard to go to the majority leader's office and, like, do a sit-in protest to get arrested. And I think they did this to Pelosi, too, a while back, if memory serves. Like, to me, you would be absolutely done even if I agreed with you, if you, if I were the boss, if I were the member of Congress, even if I agreed with you that we should be doing more or whatever, if you're going to go and create a disruption in the leadership offices and you're going to make it about you as a congressional staffer or intern, you're out. 
But this is what is incentivized on the left these days. This is what is encouraged. You make a big show, you posture, you preen, you have to demonstrate and virtue signal just how down for the cause you are. Whether it's going to protest people at their houses, I mean, you name it. And so I think that a lot of bosses on the left who might be uncomfortable with some of this stuff nevertheless just have to sit there and swallow it because the staffers are representing the base and the grassroots. And if you punish the staffers for being totally unprofessional, then you'll have a problem with the base and there could be activists at your house next, potentially. Or inundating your office with abuse because, you know, you're siding with the weak need, whatever, and therefore complicit in the death of the planet and the Republicans, whatever. I just the the amount of self-regard and self-importance from these little children. Like you're some junior staffer or you're a, an intern. I almost called them something that would have gotten me in trouble. I came close. I was like, nope, I'm not going to use that word. Like, oh, I'm so crucial. I have so much influence. Let me go chase some cloud and get a bunch of applause on social media and a bunch of likes. And maybe when I move into my next stage of my career, not on Capitol Hill, I can point to this or whatever and my friends back at college will be impressed or something. I don't know. But it it just like I was an intern at the White House years ago. And there were things that President Bush at the time did that I disagreed with. I'm going to go chain myself to the fence on like West Exec outside the West Wing across the street from the EEOB because I'm so important. I'm going to stand up for my beliefs. It's just like there's a time and a place. And if you commit to go work for something and to work for change through our process, I just I find it pitiful. And, of course, it achieved absolutely nothing except a dopamine hit for these people. And now they get this mark on their record, which is a plus in these left-wing circles. Being arrested in this type of thing is a plus, not a negative, which is why they do it. These are careerists at their core. If they felt like this would actually hurt them, they probably wouldn't do it. But the incentive structure is so messed up. And one of them I saw tweeted on social media that is, we had no choice. We had no choice but to do this. And we put our bodies on the line for the planet. No, you didn't. You sat your ass down in Chuck Schumer's office for a while. That's what you did. You didn't put your bodies on the line. That's what police do. The people that you want to defund or said that you wanted to defund until it pulled badly and now you don't want to defund them anymore. That's what cops actually do. That's what the military actually does. Defending the country that a lot of you increasingly don't really love very much and do nothing but dump all over it constantly. That's who put their bodies on the line for something meaningful. You sitting in your loafers and your suit and your, you know, uh, skinny tie with florals on it in Chuck Schumer's office, you didn't put your body on the line for anything. Give me a break. No wonder these people can't govern. These are the people that, and the thing is, it's the younger generation. You're seeing it in newsrooms, you know, in the journalism realm. The younger generation on the progressive left are radicalized and like pretty crazy in what they're willing to say and do. They have no ability or desire to have 
a meaningful exchange on substance to look at what is realistic, what institutions and norms require. They don't care about any of that. So while there's a major threat to left-wing governance in this country heading into the midterms and some major changes happening in the country with shifts to the right on a number of different issues, the left is too busy fighting itself, it feels like, a lot of the time to get anything done. And then, of course, they blame it on their fellow comrades not being woke or progressive or enlightened enough, which is how you get all the threats of primary challenges and coming after mansion and cinema. And, you know, they protest outside of Chuck Schumer's house, not just in the office, but at the house. This is the stew that they've been cooking for a while. And I think the goal was to have some movement and have this sort of punish the right. But actually, most people on the right reject this. Most independents and sort of centrist-ish people reject it. So all they're doing is like creating a circular firing squad and blasting away constantly. And look, believe me, the Republicans are really good at that too. Conservatives and Republicans attack each other constantly. And there's purity tests. And I think a lot of the times, especially these days, the tests have very little to do with substance and everything to do with personality, cults, and loyalty, and I just I don't like any of that. It's just reassuring to know that the other side is equally, if not more, dysfunctional. Because sometimes I sit and I wonder, given the fact that Republicans and conservatives go after each other constantly, and there are these deep schisms, and a lot of it gets personal, and the media is constantly against the right, the news media, cultures against us, Hollywood, all of it's like, how do Republicans ever win anything? It's like, oh, right, because Democrats are out of their minds. And they can't govern and they attack each other just as viciously, maybe more viciously. And the venom and there's they can't even argue. They can't talk about anything because it's all oh, check your privilege. No, your privilege is worse. Well, what is your skin color? Well, hang on. It's like this totem pole of privilege and grievance. That's how they talk about everything. Which is a perfect transition into our next topic. Wait to hear this story. Woke Tales coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. I'm in New York City. Our website remains the same. GuyBensonShow.com. Every day, podcast is free of charge and on demand. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. A while back, a couple weeks ago, we read to you at length from a story at The Intercept talking about how professional left-wing organizations and activist organizations, especially based in D.C., have come apart at the seams over wokeness. They have become so insanely focused and fixated on color and ethnicity and other identity politics that they have effectively ceased to function in terms of what their actual missions are. They've just been consumed with recriminations and bitterness and anger and grievances. And the writer of that piece, Ryan Grimm, said it's not just one or two organizations. It's a bunch of them across the left-wing spectrum, from abortion groups to the ACLU, to environmental organizations. This has become a cancer that has ground the work of the professional left 
effectively to a halt. And I called it the feel-good story of the month to witness the revolution eating its own, just consuming itself from the inside and therefore being paralyzed in the core function, at least ostensibly, of the organizations to go and make change, most of the change being, in my view, in my mind, wrong and deleterious to the country. So they created this Frankenstein monster, they fed it, and now it was storming through their social and professional milieu and really dragging down the left wing in America. And it really couldn't happen to more deserving people, honestly. They asked for it. They got it. Enjoy. So we had some fun with that story. Here is sort of like a companion story, a follow-up to it. It's from the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron Sabarium wrote it. Headline, Inside the Woke Meltdown at One Domestic Violence Organization. Now, this is not necessarily something that is partisan or ideological. Obviously, if there are people targeted with domestic violence, that is a very serious thing and they need help. And to have an organization devoted to that help completely implode on itself because of the same woke pieties and sort of vicious, merciless enforcement of this hardcore ideology, that is not only bad for the organization, it's bad for the people that it serves who do need assistance. So this is less of a gleeful story for me to read, but it makes a similar point about how destructive this toxin is in various elements of our culture and society that are dominated by the left. So here's how the story begins. It was just two months after the death of George Floyd that one of the largest domestic violence nonprofits in the United States Women Against Abuse, brought in several diversity consultants to conduct a racial equity audit. The goal of the audit, the group told staffers, was to become, quote, a fully inclusive, multicultural, and anti-racist institution. So the point was to help overwhelmingly women at risk, victims of abuse, and then intersectionality took over. Wokeness poisoned the whole thing. And you brought in these equity consultants, which is such a racket, to try to bring that to pass. By November of 2020, the story says, the organization, which is ostensibly devoted to serving all survivors, was offering to pay employees of color more than their white counterparts and discouraging black abuse victims from calling the police. Its employees were also at war with each other, bickering over whether Jews are a persecuted minority group and whether there is such a thing as a non-racist white person. And the story goes through and chronicles each of those phenomena. And indeed, Black and Hispanic and other employees of color were explicitly told, we're going to pay you more. We're going to give you a bigger stipend just because you're a marginalized group and therefore you need money. It's kind of like reparations. And that did not sit well with a number of employees, including a lot of white employees. The idea that Jews are not a persecuted minority group 
Jews are 1% or 2% of the population and have a hugely disproportionate number of hate crimes targeted against them. In many years, they are the number one target of hate crimes in America. But you had other members of the organization saying that doesn't count. They're basically just white people. It's not the same thing. You're privileged. Take the hate crimes and stow it. We don't want to hear about it. It doesn't fall into this same category. And that obviously was deeply offensive to other people as well. Perhaps most shocking and most appalling to me is these consultants coming in and the audit happening. And Women Against Abuse began at that point to host presentations on defunding the police, whom it discouraged non-white victims of domestic violence from calling. Quote, it is often unsafe for black victims, victims of color, and immigrant victims to reach out to police for help, the group posted on its website, given the, quote, inherent racism of law enforcement. Think about how poisonous this is. If you're a white woman being beaten by a spouse or a domestic partner, go and call the police for help. But if you aren't white, if your skin is a different color, don't call the police for help in a dangerous, violent situation. Because, I guess the thought process is, the police are more dangerous. Because of their inherent racism, the police are more dangerous to you as a person of color than the person literally abusing you. What a shocking and outrageous thing to even contemplate, let alone adopt as a dogmatic article of faith at a group supposedly devoted to helping and supporting all victims. It's a smear against law enforcement, obviously, and it is dangerous. It is dangerous for people in need who are at risk to be fed these lies. And yet that's what this group did at the exhortation, at the recommendation of these equity consultants who I'm sure were paid a pretty penny. The group also said that they needed to purge any processes or protocols that were a, quote, safe harbor of white supremacy. They asked all white staffers to sign a statement affirming that, quote, all white people are racist and I am not the exception. They had racially segregated meetings that were required. And they said that the so-called smog of white supremacy culture is everywhere, that everyone, quote, ingests, digests, and push back out to the people around us. And some of the smog, the so-called smog of white supremacy culture, includes things and attitudes like having a sense of urgency or the concept of objectivity. That, they said, was white supremacy. It was a smog infecting people, and so they had to sign a statement. They were urged to sign a statement denouncing it, denouncing themselves. They had 15 commandments, one of which was this, own that all white people are racist and that I am not the exception. And at least one of the employees refused to go along with any of it and has filed a lawsuit, and that's why a lot of this is now spilling out into the open. When you allow these types of people, the hardcore wokesters, to take over your organization or really to have a toehold, your mission suffers, the people that you're serving suffer, many of your employees suffer, your brand, the whole thing suffers, and in some cases collapses. 
And when it's some left-wing group, we can revel in that and sort of poke fun, point and laugh. You deserve it. When it's a group with a mission like this, it is much more disturbing. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. When we return, U.S. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin joins us. You don't want to miss that conversation. It's straight ahead. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show from New York on this Tuesday. And for the rest of the week, thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program needs, including the free podcast every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show on social media. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink at TheLongDrink.com. Find out where they're sold near you. 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. And joining me now is Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th District, Congressman, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Over the weekend and the last couple of days, I've actually heard from a few different Republican members of the House in the aftermath of the vote over the gay marriage bill, which was kind of like a reverse DOMA, a reverse Defense of Marriage Act, which I explained on the air here. I'm in favor of the bill. It's moved over to the U.S. Senate, and they are trying to figure out if they can get 10 or more Republicans to join unified Democrats and pass it and make it the law. And as I explained last week, I think it's redundant. I think it is unnecessary. Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage back in 2015, is the binding law of the land. I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think even with this conservative court, they would get enough votes even to bring a challenge to the high court. And if that somehow were to happen, I'm confident they do not have five votes to overturn Obergefell. So I think to some extent it's a moot point. But I understand some people are worried about it. They look at the Dobbs case. They say, well, maybe there are more dominoes to fall. I've explained why I don't agree with that analysis. But for some of those folks, this could be peace of mind. It could be a backstop. And because the bill was structured in the way that it was, which was not the government, the federal government, telling every state that if in the unlikely event Obergefell went away, Every state would have to legalize gay marriage. That would be, I think, constitutionally suspect in terms of the role of the states and federalism and the Tenth Amendment. But what it does do, if it became law, is it would say every state would have to at least recognize same-sex marriages that were legally obtained elsewhere in the country, sort of reciprocity. And so because they laid it out and constructed this bill the way that they did, not as a poison pill— not to message and make it look like Republicans are just, you know, intolerant bigots. I thought it was actually pretty good in the scheme of things and intended to win as many votes from the other side of the aisle as possible. And indeed, 47 House Republicans, dozens of House Republicans voted yes. And there are whispers that there could be more than enough 
Republican senators to get the bill past the 60 vote threshold in the upper chamber and get this thing to Biden's desk. So clearly there's been some bipartisan movement on this issue. I would call it progress. Some of you may disagree, but that's just where I'm coming from. As someone who is conservative and gay and married to my husband, this is something that I pay some extra attention to because there's perhaps some skin in the game. That's the big backdrop, Congressman, the lead-in to a conversation that you and I had over the phone over the weekend, and you were not the only member on both sides of the issue who reached out, and I appreciated it. You wanted to sort of walk through your thought process on the vote and why you voted no. I would have been a yes. You were a no. I respect you. I like you. You're a young guy and tolerant and, you know, not, I think, in any way, shape, or form homophobic or anti-gay. And so I thought it might be useful just for us to have a conversation for our audience, for you to explain your thought process and and how you got to your answer. And I really it was meaningful to me. I appreciated you reaching out and you were kind enough to say, hey, let's do this again. Let's have this conversation again in public. I think that that's a good, healthy thing when there are disagreements. So with that big wind up, let me hand the floor to you and you can maybe share with the audience your mindset going into the vote last week? Well, first of all, guys, I appreciate that. And the respect obviously goes both ways. And it's why I reached out. I, I think the bias I bring to this debate is that I truly believe the United States of America needs more marriage, full stop. Marriage rates have dropped from 10 marriage per thousand people in 1990 to half of that today. So I think we should all throw our support behind the idea of two people deciding to stand up in front of their community, devote themselves to each other, regardless of class, creed, race, or sex. And we should, as legislators, remove all unnecessary impediments to that commitment between two human beings, whether that's the marriage penalty in the tax code, uh, which we reduced but didn't eliminate in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. I, I support repealing DOMA, which I believe exceeds the enumerated powers of Congress. All its major provisions have been struck down by the Supreme Court. It's doing nothing on the federal books. And even Justice Alito has talked about strong equal protection claims that are involved in marriage equality, and I find that persuasive. I also realize now, to to what you're saying, I I agree completely with your analysis of Obergefell, but I don't think it's enough for me to simply say, oh, Pelosi's fear-mongering and wasting our time. It's true that Pelosi jammed us. It's true that there was no amendment process. It's true that she cynically inserted interracial marriage, which nobody opposes, to score – political points. But it's also true that for the millions of legally married gay couples in America, Obergefell, is, it, it's a, it can seem like a tenuous layer of protection, and their lives would be upended if it were overturned, even if that's a low probability. And even if uh, that probability is low, Congress should still be in the business of doing its job and not outsourcing that job to the judicial branch. Um, I, I mean, agree. Perhaps I'll, I'll pause there before getting into what I believe is an actual substantive and not procedural problem with the bill itself. Yeah. And look, I get the point on procedure. And I guess they said, hey, they sort of sprung the vote on you guys. We're doing this. There is no really time for meaningful debate or amendments. That is unfortunately somewhat typical these days in politics. And the majority has the power to do that. And look, I think it's fine to make the point that procedurally it wasn't great, and perhaps there were a few things thrown in there for messaging, but it could have been so much worse. Like, overall, I think on substance, it's actually a pretty good piece of legislation 
that unlike the Roe versus Wade so-called codification bill that they put together over on the other side, which is a grotesque, radical monstrosity that even pro-choice Republicans couldn't stomach, that was not the case here. What they could have done is just had a totally partisan bill packed with poison pills that even gay marriage supporters on the right would say, nope, that goes too far. It's an attack on religious liberty, all this other stuff. And then had a party line vote and then pointed over at the Republicans saying, see, look at all of these bigots. It's 2022 and they still won't support whatever. And that would have gotten a lot of viral attention and probably achieved nothing. But they didn't do that in this case. And I do want to give them and the Republicans who were involved in the process some credit for putting together, I think, legislation that was pretty sensible that was at least written up in a way that would conceivably attract a maximum number of Republicans to come on board and vote yes. And it seemed to have worked, actually. Close to 50 in the House, as I mentioned, maybe 10-plus in the Senate on the GOP side. But there was that breakdown where about a fourth of Republicans in the House voted yes. The majority voted no. You were within that group of no. And I'm trying to sort of square that circle because virtually everything that you said when you gave that first answer would lead me to believe by the sounds of it that you would have been a yes on this bill, and yet you weren't. So maybe explain that if you wouldn't mind. There's one thing I think needs to be fixed, and I think it would both uh, increase the chances of something passing in the Senate and also reduce the likelihood of whatever uh, passes being challenged in court and then this being litigated endlessly. And first, let me be clear. I am not endorsing the so-called slippery slope argument, but I do believe this provision may inadvertently give oxygen to that argument. So this bill, uh, H.R. 8404, it repeals DOMA. It does not, as you point out, and as some on the right uh, are are erroneously claiming, it doesn't force states to marry same-sex couples. It just requires them to recognize legal same-sex marriages from other states. For example, if a gay couple lived in a state where gay marriage was permitted, then moved to a state where it was not, that state would have to recognize the marriage for tax and benefit purposes. It's very uh, similar in concept to the idea of concealed carry reciprocity, which most conservatives support. Um, But the reciprocity provisions are contradictory. So when it speaks about reciprocity between the states and invokes the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, it explicitly says pertaining to a marriage between two individuals. Two individuals, two human beings. That's the key phrase. When speaking about reciprocity between states and the federal government, however, the resolution omits the qualifier between two individuals and instead says that an individual's marriage should be considered valid simply if it's valid in the state the marriage was entered into. So the second provision would force the federal government to recognize a marriage beyond two people if just one state permitted it. I concede no state permits it now. You may view that as a low probability outcome, but in my mind, it's higher than the probability Obergefell gets overturned. Yeah. Regardless, the resolution should be internally consistent. Uh, we don't want to force the federal government to recognize polyamorous marriages that other states would be under no obligation to recognize. And again, we don't want to go down the path of then litigating this and ironically increasing the likelihood that the Supreme Court revisits the issue. So all I'm asking for is the Senate to make a simple three-word fix make the bill internally consistent. Uh, should that happen, uh, I would vote for it if it came back to the House. And I think others in the Senate and the House would as well, and that would send an even more powerful message for the proponents of marriage equality. Yeah, and look, I would say there are some folks who have argued if you let gay people get married, there will be this huge parade of horribles that will come next. 
And I think some conservatives might say some of that stuff has actually happened, right? It's not just, you know, purely crazy, you know, conspiratorial fever swamp stuff. There has been a pretty dramatic and fast shift away from just, hey, our love, our marriage doesn't affect you to, you know, you must bake the cake and going after religious business owners and a lot of the trans stuff and then indoctrination in schools for young kids. That's not the figment of people's imagination. And when I think things go too far and the so-called LGBT agenda, whatever that might be, doesn't speak for me, I say so and I push back on it. I also think that can be and should be all of that, each issue separated out from, for example, same-sex marriage. And I'm in one, and I'm grateful for that, and I hope that is something that people in my position will have that right and that ability and that peace of mind for many generations to come. And so I get some of the concerns. Well, if you give them this, then they're going to want that. That might be true for some activists. It is not true for all of us. I think lumping LGBT people all into one group that think the same way on everything is unfair. That's not true. And as I said, when there are excesses that I think need to be opposed, I'll stand up and do it. To me, same-sex marriage has cleared the hurdle, obviously, of public acceptance. 70-plus percent of Americans now support it. A majority of Republican voters, based on the Gallup poll, now support it. That was true as of last year. But there's still... A gap between elected Republicans and apparently the Republican electorate. There's kind of this delay where we're waiting for maybe elected officials like yourself to catch up with where a lot of voters are. I think your point is well taken. That one little three word phrase that was in one part of the bill and then not echoed in another relevant part of the bill that maybe conceivably could open the door for some sort of polyamorous whatever. I think it would be easy for the Senate just to tweak that, and maybe if that would really bring the number up even higher, that could be a good, positive, healthy thing. Bounce it back down to the House. Maybe it would get even more Republican support. I just think that, again, because of Obergefell, I think that this is not a super relevant piece of legislation in terms of something that is going to be needed or in the conversation anytime soon, if ever. But just in case I get it, I think overall I would still support the bill. I've been in favor of it. I think the point that you raise is a fair one. And I just want to end with this, Congressman, just to put a finer point on it. If that small tweak, that small fix to make the bill consistent internally were to be made in the Senate, you would be a yes on it? Do you think other members would come along who were previously no's? Uh, yes and yes, uh, in, in in part as well, because we will then have had time to actually understand the constitutional and legal issues involved. I know this is – listen, this is a four-page bill. You can't claim you didn't have time to read it, but you're dealing with very complex issues, the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. I mean people have spent their whole careers uh, legally uh, analyzing that, and so it's important – we get it right. And this isn't like the last train leaving the station. It, it could be done in a matter of hours in the House. Granted, the Senate will have to burn floor time, but they can be in session for a week in October to make this fix. And for my Republican colleagues who are saying, well, you know, this shouldn't be a federal issue. States states are dominant uh, when it comes to marriage. OK, I agree with that. But you then can't stand in defense of the Defense of Marriage Act because the Defense of Marriage Act 
is actually the federal government dictating to the state the definition of marriage. And there has to be some sort of reciprocity provision. And Republicans were fine with that. Republicans overwhelmingly supported DOMA for many years. So, I mean, if that's the principle, there were a lot of Republicans willing to violate the principle when the outcome flowed in the other direction. So I think that's an important point to make. I have one last curiosity on this front for Congressman Mike Gallagher. We will get to that as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, a Republican, my guest on The Guy Benson Show, talking about gay marriage. One last thing, Congressman. If for whatever reason somehow it came back to the states, hypothetically you're a congressman on the federal level, but if you were a state senator or a state rep in Wisconsin and there were a bill on just an up or down yes or no on legalized same-sex marriage in Wisconsin, where would you be on that? I'd be in favor of marriage equality. Interestingly enough, there's there's a provision in the state constitution in Wisconsin uh, that does not recognize same-sex marriage. But if Obergefell went away, and it's first, there was a 2006 referendum. If Obergefell went away, and this is where it gets even more complex, there's a Seventh Circuit ruling which would still allow for it to be uh, legal, which, which I think gets to this point that we just it, – it's always bad when the judicial branch is getting involved in multiple levels because there's contradictory law or vague law. Or, or Congress simply hasn't done its job, which, again, I think gets to the point I made originally. Yeah, legislators should legislate. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I get that it's difficult. This, this issue uh, is difficult uh, and, it, and it's complex. But you, you can't just, you know, on the one hand say, you know, thank, thank God that the, the Supreme Court send the issue of abortion back to the states. But then on this issue, this issue say, no, oh, it's fine. The Supreme Court, you know, that's the firewall. Um, the, the legislative branch needs to do its job. Legislators need to legislate whether it's seen as needed or not. And I think, Congressman, it was good to have this conversation on the air. It was nice to have it in private. I had it with a few others as well. And I appreciate your willingness to come here. And I value that to have an open and honest conversation. And in my view, we need a lot more of that in our discourse generally. Well, thank you as well. I really appreciate your perspective. And uh, to my friends on the left, uh, I, you know, I will say, you know, if you if you think my my concerns about the the imprecision here are overblown, um, why not why not just fix this and, and get it done right, and thereby rebut the slippery slope argument uh, entirely, I, and I get more votes, a, right? Have an even bigger bipartisan mandate here. I think that's a fair challenge, a fair point to make, Congressman. We will get to foreign policy next time you come on. We went way past our time, but we'll get to China and everything else next time, and I look forward to that. All right. Thank you, sir. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier in the program today here on the Guy Benson Show, right at the top, we caught up with Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports on Fox News Channel, also a business expert. She was on the Business Network for years. And we wanted to talk to Sandra about all of the economic news that's swirling, including some new data out today. Here's part of Sandra's analysis. Listen. Well, we told you yesterday at the top of the show that this is going to be a big week on economic indicators. There were some big reports that we've been waiting on, the big one probably being Thursday, the biggest, which is GDP. The economic growth or lack thereof indicator. 
That's going to be July 28th, and there's this big conversation right now about whether or not we're going to get a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, contraction, which would be, based on the rule of thumb definition used forever, a recession. And on the show yesterday, we played a bunch of sound bites of the Biden team already preemptively trying to sort of change the landscape and change the definition of a recession, saying, oh, even if it comes in bad, it wouldn't technically be a recession. So there's a lot to unpack there. And there's new data out today. Let's get into it. Let's dig into it with Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts. Every weekday from 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel. She spent a lot of time in her career at the Business Network. She understands the economy. She's covered it for many years. And Sandra, as always, it's great to have you. Great to, ha- great to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the new news out today on consumer confidence. That metric was expected to be soft, and it turned out to be even softer than the expectations. Tell us about that number and what it means. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just a change in the way the consumer is feeling in this country right now. And um, we're definitely seeing a a change in the way the consumer is behaving. I think you probably saw the latest with Walmart. Uh, They're putting out warnings about the way people are shopping now. Uh, They're not just strolling the aisles and throwing things in the cart that they don't necessarily need, just items they want. They're cutting back, changing their behaviors, and they're uh, starting to only buy what they need. And that is an indication to economists that there is a change in sentiment. And then when you get a consumer confidence number like this, nearing a one and a half year low, um, while at the same time, you've still got housing prices elevated, you're entering sort of what one economist I read this morning described as this perfect storm for a downturn in the U.S. economy. And we always, Guy, look to those GDP numbers, okay? It's It's the it's the broad metric of growth that we, we look at for the American economy. And traditionally, two straight quarters of economic declines or, you know, contractions in the economy, that is the definition of a recession. Most economists do go by that. This White House is now saying, well, you know, there's some areas of the economy like un- unemployment that is still low. So we don't really think that this time around, even if GDP is negative for a second quarter, we don't think this is actually a recession. And you have to ask yourself that question. You, you look at the timing um, that we're approaching the midterm elections. You, you, the administration isn't going to want to say uh, that this president's policies have led us into a recession just months before uh, voters head to the polls. Right. Um, that's just not going to work. So it seems to me they're just trying to avoid the use of that word because of the negative implications of it. Oh, I think that's obvious. I think it's hard to argue otherwise. So you've got the consumer confidence number falling. We knew it would probably come down. It came down more than expected. There was also this U.S. home price growth cooled for a second straight month in May. We just got that number in. So maybe that bubble is deflating a little bit as well. There's been some of the some of the indicators of a roaring economy or, you know, a hot economy are starting to cool off, Sandra. And you layer on top of that this meeting that everyone's looking to with the Fed about interest rates and discussions about whether they might need to do a really big one, another really painful one in a series of actions that would hurt the economy overall. I mean, that's like next up on the chopping block here. We've got consumer confidence today. We've got GDP Thursday. We've got the Fed meeting. It's just kind of this 
potentially murderer's row of a week with big, big decisions and numbers coming out that could very much chart the trajectory moving forward here for the months to come. Let me just share this this with you, because I put in a request to our brain room folks at Fox. They're awesome. and They dig up all kinds of, you know, brand new information for us or information that existed. But we dig it up because it's there and it doesn't always get um, the light of day. I asked our brain room to take a look at who is hurt the most by this inflationary crisis. And, Guy, I know you know the answer to that, but we don't always talk about the actual data behind it. I mean, this inflationary problem, which Janet Yellen admittedly got wrong, um, and so many other administration officials got wrong, it's going to be transitory, this isn't going to last very long, and here we are. If they had gotten it right, we could have avoided, you know, the 9% inflation that we're all suffering through today. And we wouldn't have to have the Federal Reserve potentially raise interest rates a full percentage point uh, at the conclusion of tomorrow's meeting, which would be um, that would be a huge moment for credit card borrowers. It'll be a huge moment for home buyers. It's going to change a lot of things about this economy at a time where uh, 60% of the population is living paycheck to paycheck. I asked the brain room, I said, can you tell me, for lower-income households, when you take their average income, the average income of the lower-income households in America, tell me what percentage of their income they're spending on inflation? It is astounding, Guy. The lower-income households, the Brain Room says, that make $26,400 a year on average are on track this year to spend 26 percent of their income on gas and home energy bills wow. that's up from 20 percent um that they they were spending in 2020 middle income they're on track to spend uh 12 percent of their average sixty five thousand dollar income on inflation you go to the highest income group this is not hurting the higher income group so my point is the highest income group this is is inflation accounts for five percent of their overall income so the very people that this administration says that they are out to help the most are the ones paying for their policy mistakes. Yep. And that needs to be highlighted. Well, and we've heard from the White House. We played a clip yesterday. They're going back to this talking point. We need the economy to grow from the middle out and the bottom up. I think that's a very silly talking point. But if you take it seriously, it is not working at all. It, just the opposite is happening under Joe Biden's economy with inflation taking an extra painful bite out of people, the lower they get down the income scale, lower income, middle income, I mean, double digits they're spending, they're dedicating double digits out of necessity, devoting double digit percentage of their income to inflation related costs. I mean, that is just a staggering statistic, Sandra. I think it really illustrates the problem here and why it is so acute for so many people. And let's talk then about the issue of a recession and the possibility of a recession. I know, as you pointed out, the White House doesn't really want to touch that word for political reasons. And there's a bunch of people digging up clips of them and reporters and administration officials using that shorthand two consecutive quarters of uh, economic contraction is a recession. They've used it many times because it is broadly used. It is commonplace. It's not like this was invented to hurt Joe Biden. This is the standard, and they don't want it to hurt Joe Biden, so they're going to try to change the standard, change the definition. So Karine Jean-Pierre, who speaks on behalf of the president, the White House press secretary, she said that economic indicators right now, quote, do not show that we are in a recession or even a pre-recession. That's the quote. She said, we're not in a recession or a pre-recession. 
I would love to know how she defines pre-recession, but she wouldn't even define recession. In Cut 14, listen to this. What is exactly the White House's definition of a recession? Again, we don't, we don't, def- I'm not going to define it from here. I'm just going to leave it to the NBER as, as Okay, so she, she punts. Oh, we're, we're not going to define the word recession, but we're not in one and we're not even in a pre-recession. And I think if she were pressured to answer what is a pre-recession, what the hell are you talking about? I don't think she would have a great answer there. Sandra, it just kind of sounds like gobbledygook where they want to sort of assure people that we're not in a recession and Biden himself said we're not going to be in one that's what he said yesterday and then also when pushed on what their terms actually mean uh, they don't want to go there either because maybe they don't want to provide sound bites that would hurt them politically I just don't know how they feel that this approach is doing anything for anyone that's going to benefit them politically because it's so obviously sort of tap dancing political spin at least to me Tap dancing and out of touch add to uh, the economic data that is readily available to this White House. And you can make the case that they're just ignoring it. Um, As we reported on our show earlier, um, you've now got more Americans today than ever before having to work two full-time jobs just to pay for the high cost of inflation. Um, That is something that people feel. That is something that hurts people um, every day and takes away from them spending time with their family. As I mentioned earlier, six, earlier, 60 percent of the American population says that they are now living paycheck to paycheck, uh, trying to cover these the cost of these bills. And as I had one viewer email me during the show today saying, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge how hard it is for the working folks out there. It's another thing to also think about those who are trying to meet these inflation demands on a fixed income. You know, it's it, it, it's tight everywhere. So what I will say to you, um, Guy, when you hear the White House trying to tap dance around this, uh, defining this as a recession, it doesn't take away from the facts of the matter. Right, the reality on the ground, and you're looking at consumer confidence, housing prices, maybe another big height rake from the Fed, and then this question about recession and the GDP number on Thursday, it's all coming to a head this week. My full interview with Sandra Smith, our colleague here at Fox News, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also part of the entire show, which is on the podcast, start to finish, on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, the end of an era in the world of ice cream treats. People are mourning the loss. We'll discuss right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every single day. Coming to you from New York City for the rest of the week up here for a lot of TV duties. And happy to do the radio show up here as well in the process. Well, we talked about it just briefly before the break. And if you haven't heard already, I am very sorry to inform you that Klondike has announced the discontinuation of the beloved Choco Taco after nearly four decades on the market. And I have seen many tributes to the Choco Taco on social media all day, people who were fans of the product who are not pleased by this decision. You wonder if there might be enough of a groundswell of support 
to maybe bring it back or to save it. I think of the Choco Taco as a staple of the ice cream truck. Where it was a popular, I think maybe not popular enough, evidently, but a popular option for people if you're at the beach. So growing up, we'd go to the beach and you would hear the ice cream truck pull up, not with a little song. Some of the trucks play little songs as they drive down the street and people come running. This one would just ring a bell, like a school bell. I'm here. And then cue all the kids begging their parents for a few bucks to then rush across the sand and get in line and get an ice-cold treat. And my parents, I feel like, would say yes uh, 60-ish percent of the time. Sometimes it was a no, it was too close to dinner or something like that, but generally we were allowed to go get an ice cream delectable treat. By the way, on my graduation from high school, my high school does this amazing tradition called Project Graduation where you spend the night at the local middle school doing all sorts of fun stuff, and it's meant to keep kids safe as opposed to being out partying, and they make it so fun that everyone wants to be there, and it was great. And my theme for my Project Graduation in 2003 was the Jersey Shore, and they did such a great job with it. And one of the features that they had was an ice cream truck where everything was free. So all night you could just go up and get whatever you wanted, which was kind of like a dream come true. I was 18 at the time, but I was thinking back to being 10 and saying I probably would have put myself in a sugar coma if this had been available to me when I was a little bit younger. So the Choco Taco, it seems, will be no more, whether you're devastated by that or you've never had a Choco Taco, surely you've had some experience with an ice cream truck at some point, you would think. Most Americans, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm in a bubble. Dan, have you had an ice cream truck experience? Oh, yeah, all the time, down on the water growing up, yeah. Wyatt? Yes, 100%. Okay, it's not like some weird thing. This is something common to a lot of communities. Question, we'll go around the horn briefly. If you heard the song coming down the street right now, the little pre-recorded ditty associated with a lot of the trucks or just the bell that I mentioned, and you had a split second to make a decision, what is your go-to order at the ice cream truck, Dan? Um, My first go-to would be a drumstick, which is very much like a Choco Taco. Just in a different form. Yes, a very similar taste profile and list of ingredients. And I think that is an excellent choice, and that would be near the top of my list as well, I would say. Wyatt? This is this is really tough. I'm looking online right now at, at what the menu is on ice cream trucks, and it's just it's tough. Either strawberry shortcake or I really like the, the screwball where you would dig for the, the uh, gumball at the bottom. Yeah. I was never a screwball fan, but that was a popular one. Was the strawberry shortcake kind of like the eclair on a stick? Yes. It's like ice cream with that sort of like... The crumbles on it. The crumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really good. I think I would have to go with the classic, traditional, red, white, and blue rocket popsicle. Oh, boy. Just the popsicle. No ice cream, no dairy involved. It's just a popsicle. It's very America. 
And maybe I would go every other time. I would get the Popsicle one time and then an ice cream product the next time and alternate. But I don't know. Sometimes, especially when it's really hot, I just wanted the Popsicle. And a few years ago, we did a summer barbecue at the house. Producer Christine was invited, said she was going to come, said she was going to make vodka shots, like jello shots, then did not come. But we bought for the party those popsicles and we gave them out. And they were a hit because I think there's also some nostalgia attached to the whole experience. Who gets a popsicle anymore when you're an adult? Sometimes you just want a popsicle. I actually saw some kids this summer. I was at a 4th of July party, and they had those long popsicles in the little tubes where you cut off the top, and then you squeeze the ice up into your mouth. Those were good. I liked the blue one, like the blue raspberry one, maybe the red, which could have been cherry. The other ones, take it or leave it. Sometimes you just want a popsicle, even if you happen to be, oh, I don't know, 37 years old. So the demise of the Choco Taco, RIP, sparked this thought. So we decided to turn it into really a tribute and a walk down memory lane of a very sweet variety. And now I'm in the mood for one of these things, honestly. Back here tomorrow from the Big Apple on The Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then. Same time, same place. Have a great night. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.